This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to the Transformative Principle. This is your host, Eric McKelkey, and today's guest, we have joining us, John Shambari. Welcome, John. Hi, Eric. Glad to be here. Yeah, John's joining us from his mobile office on a Sunday, out running some errands, so he's zooming in the car. Really excited. John, your your bio and your experiences are so vast. You know, when we first connected a couple months ago, it was like, man, I'm not even sure what topic to to start with, but you... <laughs> You've been a you've been a principal in about every setting, public, private, overseas, Department of Correction schools. You've been a curriculum director, and curriculum is what you and I had talked about would kind of kick off our conversation today on the show. Yeah, definitely, Eric. I'm happy to talk about any and all of it, uh, and glad to be here uh, on a Sunday. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So, John, let's let's start with this when you and I were talking before we recorded I was taking notes and I really like something you said we were talking about when teachers come in to the school or the district that are new and what we need to have in place and what they need to have in place but you had made the comment that sometimes you hear teachers say well I'm just I got to rush through and teach it all I got to teach the curriculum and that was something that you cautioned against so so tell me what's wrong with that when you hear teachers saying I'm going to just rush through it and get it all taught. Definitely. So whether or not a teacher is using a prefabricated, you know, open source curriculum that was available on the internet that, that say the district purchase or that the district purchased, or even if it's a curriculum that teachers and educators in the school system itself have created, students change every year, right? Even when you're in the same district. So your, for example, your fifth grade students this year might not be like your fifth grade students next year or the fifth graders who are now sixth graders, right? So if you're just trying to, quote unquote, get through the curriculum and teach the curriculum unit by unit in exactly the order that it's put together, no more, no less, you might be hitting the needs of your students. But you might not, because, again, the students sitting in those seats in front of you this year are different, right, than the ones that you had last year or, again, the ones you're going to have next year. So 
you have to really align curriculum along with the assessment of your students and their readiness for learning, right? So mm-hmm. whether or not you're in a district that uses diagnostic assessment, say at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, and the end of the year, or whether, and even if your district or your school is not doing that, even it, it, even if you as a teacher are doing a pre-assessment before a unit and then a post-assessment after to measure student achievement and growth, you still have to be tying what you're doing and where you're focusing your energy on in the curriculum based on the needs of the students that you have. So the curriculum might be very large, might be very vast, but you want to be focusing on those skills that students and those standards that have been embedded in the curriculum that students still are not mastering, first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. So if that means you spend a little less time on a unit in the curriculum that your students already coming into your classroom and have a good grasp on, that's okay because you want to be spending more of your time going over the parts of the curriculum where the students have academic needs. Yeah, and, and making adjustments and thinking about year to year how different students are has probably never been more true than post-COVID. And I wonder here in our school and really across the country or the world, like how much have we even adjusted curriculum. The only adjustments I can think of is the state pushes down what was a ninth grade standard to eighth grade to make it, you know, more rigorous. And it's like, man, we've got kids with lower skills coming to us than ever before. And I don't know that we've really changed our practice or our curriculum to, not that you should lower the bar, but come up with some ways to address that and help teachers connect where they're currently at as students to what we're expected to teach and assess. Exactly, Eric. And I think you hit on something as well. Even if you are spending, say, more time in a particular unit in the curriculum, right? Just spending more time doesn't mean necessarily that the students are going to learn the learning objectives, right? So we also have to be differentiating. And again, when I say differentiating, I mean, what are those scaffolds or supports that teachers need to supplement or put into place in the curriculum so we're not dumbing down the learning objective, but that students who are below readiness for that learning objective can meet it. Conversely, teachers need to be spending more time thinking about the students that have already met the learning objective and what enrichments they're going to be putting in place. So even getting back to what we were talking about before, if you're just rushing through the curriculum, I think that's going to come at the expense of developing those scaffolds and supports that the lower end kids need, as well as providing the enrichment and the extended learning that students on the upper end are going to need. Yeah. And I would, I would be willing to bet teachers that say that or th- or think that I've just got to hurry up and teach it all. The, the difference is you're talking about learning, not teaching. It's, it's not about getting through the book or getting through the program or getting through the units. It's about what did they actually learn. And that should really dictate what, what we do and what we focus on, not so much just getting through it. Does that sound right? Oh, that sounds exactly right. And I think 
that is more in line when we talk about 21st century teaching and learning. I do believe more of us in this field are coming to the realization that it really is about our educators, whether those educators are teachers or our administrators, reaching out and, again, personalizing the learning, meeting the needs of the students, rather than the students having to learn and meet the teaching strategy or the teaching style of the teacher. I mean, Eric, when we went to school, right, I think probably you and I had a similar, maybe not, has had an experience where, okay, this is what the teacher does. This is how the teacher teaches. So if the teacher lectures, we were expected to take good notes and sit there quietly and listen to the lecture, right? Well, research does show that just listening and being passively engaged in learning doesn't really work for learning retention, that we really need to be practicing our learning, talking about our learning, right? And, and again, I think most educators today realize this. So when you say it's about what the needs of the students are and teachers understanding that it's about them learning and not the teacher teaching, again, I think this is right on par, on, on point for 21st century learning when, again, we're looking at meeting the needs of our children that we have in our schools today. If you've been listening to Transformative Principle for any amount of time, you know that I have a love-hate relationship with EdTech. We have the ability to personalize learning for every single one of our students, and yet so many of our EdTech tools fall short. We need our technology to do more for us. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven to benefit all student populations, including English language learners and students in special ed programs. As a principal, I've used this in my school. As a parent, I've had my children use it as well. And let me tell you, this is a tool that definitely helps students learn and practice better. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments, and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? Now, you also know that I don't care so much about test scores, but I know that they are legislatively convenient and something that we have to deal with and manage on a day-to-day -day basis. If you can implement something that is easy and effective, why wouldn't you do it? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B E. Here's another comment that you made me think of, John. Do you ever hear teachers when they're working through curriculum development or assessment development, do you ever hear them say, oh, we're done with our curriculum? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> okay. I told you my wife works for a curriculum company and that's one of her pet peeves. And I've tried to tell her not every teacher loves curriculum and a lot of principals don't love curriculum. It's one of those things we know it's important. We know we have to do it. We have a big five-year plan of what we're going to do. 
and a lot of times we feel like, okay, once we develop assessments and revise assessments, then we're done. What should that look like if schools have gone through curriculum development, gone through a big curriculum phase, and they get to the last step? What's next instead of being done? Yeah, so I'm a big fan, Eric, of a curriculum review cycle. So if a district could have a three to a five-year curriculum review cycle where once the curriculum is done, then you have about two years, let's say, where you're really implementing and using that curriculum. But again, by the third year, you should be reviewing that curriculum, considering whether or not things need to be added or taken out of that curriculum per the needs of the students coming into your school, coming into your district. It's then going to take time to, if again, you're not rewriting your own curriculum, if you're investing in purchasing curriculum, and this goes for textbooks as well, actually, that good quality curriculum resources. And then it's also going to take time to then present findings to a board as to which curriculum and or which textbook series to purchase. So when curriculum is quote-unquote done, the cycle starts all over again. Again, you have about a year or two with that curriculum, with those, say, textbook materials, but by that third year, you should be, again, revisiting that. And even though you're done with, let's say, your curriculum, so let's say you just had a big curriculum revision in English language language arts, right? A curriculum review cycle should have other departments at different stages of this curriculum review. And the reason why you want to do that is so that way as a district or as a school, you ensure that you have money in your budget to meet the needs of or meet and have the ability to meet student needs when it comes to new textbooks in social studies or science or math because one of the the hardest things is when a district doesn't have money to purchase new materials and students are still using very outdated materials so having this curriculum review cycle again not only ensures that the curriculum is inclusive of best research and practices at all times But again, from a fiscal perspective, that the district does have money to ensure that all academic departments receive highly rigorous, engaging materials for their students. Yeah. What's your personal view on textbooks and the role they should play in schools? Yeah. So thanks for that question, because I think just like like we as educators sometimes say, oh, I got to get through the curriculum, I got to get through the curriculum. I think another another issue with us educators, and I include myself in this, is this thought that the textbook is the be-all end-all, right? So when I coach teachers and even administrators who might say, well, my teachers don't need to lesson plan, we have a textbook, right? And, uh, you know, they give suggested lessons in the back. So why are teachers turning in lesson plans, right? We don't need that. We got the textbook. Mm -hmm. Well, there are several issues with that. One, I see a textbook as a resource. But as I often tell folks, the textbook publishers, and again, the, the organizations producing curriculum, 
don't necessarily know your specific students. They don't know what your students sitting in front of you need today, right? They're often aiming for almost like kind of the, the average kid, right? And even though I think textbook publishers are getting better at providing ideas for differentiating learning on the lower end and the upper end, still no publisher is going to completely understand or know your students or the particular communities in which you are working, right? So as an educator, you're going to need to step up your game and figure out how you're going to supplement the textbook or the curriculum with, again, material topics that are going to engage your students. So I'll give you an example, Eric. You know, I worked in, I did some work in North Dakota on the Lakota Reservation. And I was really impressed. I saw this one teacher. She was a high school English teacher, and she was teaching students. They might have been freshmen, or maybe it was eighth grade. I can't quite remember. But she was teaching students how to how to cite evidence to support a claim. And she was using, and that was in the textbook, but she also decided to have a supplemental reading on the Lakota powwow that she gave her students. And I thought that was genius because students already culturally had background in that. So when they were reading the article, they already had a basic understanding of what that article was saying because they came from that cultural background. And so I think it was easier for students to see specific evidence in the text that was supporting the central theme because they weren't getting caught up on words or cultural concepts. And yet the textbook that they were using didn't really have a lot when it came to the indigenous experience or the Lakota experience, right? So I use that as an example when I talk with folks because they had the curriculum, they had the textbook from a well-known, respected publisher, but again, they weren't really, those resources weren't really completely geared to the students that teacher was serving. Yeah. And I remember they used to say Texas and California is what drives the textbook materials and decisions, not North Dakota, certainly not Wyoming. I know that. Um, Well, that's true too. You know, then you're even talking, we could talk about that too. You know, we talk about equity of student voice, but there is that dichotomy or that difference between urban districts, rural districts, rich districts, poor districts. And yeah, I would say that the textbook publishers are probably thinking more also about particular states. And they're thinking of the big populous states like New York, Texas, California. Yeah. Well, and and from my personal experience, when I was a first-year language arts teacher, the textbook was my life raft. It kept me alive and kept me from drowning when I didn't know where to go for resources or you just you rely on it more when you're inexperienced is what I felt. But then as you start to look at, well, how does this align with our students and our community and their interests and their skill level? And then the other big one was our assessments. You know, if we're taking a a state assessment, I'm pretty sure this textbook company is not creating exercises and focusing on those specific 
skills and standards that students are going to be assessed on and you start to find yourself kind of veering away from it and it becomes more of a really a resource where when I don't want to go produce my own things or find my own things it is a good tool in my opinion but really shouldn't be driving what we do. I do know there's a lot of districts that you know when they go through a curriculum adoption process they buy a textbook k-12 we're using singapore math and that's what we're all going to use i also know and i've been lucky i've been in small districts my whole career where teachers have a lot more say in the curriculum what what's your take on that if option a is we're, we're going to buy this program and use it k-12 versus option b is teachers are going to write the curriculum write the assessments which is a ton of work and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. What do you think districts should aim for between those two approaches, John? Yeah, I think but they both of those approaches have pros and cons, right? So I think it's where you are as a school or a district. So to piggyback on what you were saying before about being a new teacher, right, and using curriculum, pre-established curriculum, using textbooks was a lifeline. And I would agree with you that – when you're a new teacher and you're just trying to survive classroom management practices and developing those, and you're just trying to survive day by day and not have the kids swinging from the chandelier, so to speak, yeah. you know, I think if that's the kind of district that you're in, if your teachers are moving in and out, if your students are moving in and out, it might make sense to get a vetted research-based curriculum that's already out there because a lot of them are, are quality, right? Now, if you're, however, in a school system where you have more stability, your teachers have been there for a while, your teachers are proficient and are well-developed in, in their craft, if you have educators that are really vested and curious about the process of assessment and learning and they themselves enjoy developing curriculum and developing assessments, and that keeps them vested in the process of teaching and learning so they don't up and leave, uh, then I think you might be in a situation or an environment where it makes sense to have professional learning communities of your teachers creating curriculum and then going through that five-year curriculum review cycle, right? Because there are many educators that get excited by those projects because they are learning right along with their students. So again, I think it depends, Eric, on where you are and where you're working, really. Yeah. Well, and the other challenge when you have teachers generating a lot of that themselves is when you have turnover, that's when you have a new teacher inheriting what the prior teacher had developed, written, created for assessments. And a lot of times it's very personal and it's hard to follow and integrate when it's written from one teacher's perspective. And I've seen that also. There's just a big variance in what the final product is. And no teachers are trained in writing curriculum. I mean, that's not something we learn in our undergrad program. And I think a lot of times districts just say, here you go, write your curriculum. And, you know, with good intentions, a lot of us just don't feel like we know how to do that well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because when I 
say a district might want to write their own curriculum or teachers in the district might want to do that. I still think there should be a process for that, right? And I'm a big fan of of ensuring that regardless of who the teacher is creating that curriculum, it is based on standards, whether those are your local state standards or national standards. Any and all curriculum needs to be based on the great appropriate standards that have been established for your jurisdiction. And then once you know what those standards are, then I think it becomes a question of ensuring that when we're writing curriculum, we're not overdoing it on some standards, double dosing, triple dosing on some standards, and then missing other standards entirely. Also, standards can be, be written very concisely or they could be very broad, right? Especially when you look at standards, if we use an ELA example, figurative language. There's tons of figurative language, right? So you're not going to have kids understand and interpret figurative language in a single lesson. Mm -hmm. There's metaphors, there's similes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to have to break that standard apart. So after you know what standards you're going to be using to craft your curriculum, then I think it's also about really using some of the research in the work of Larry Ainsworth, where he talks about breaking down standards or unpacking standards into their component parts, where you're circling the nouns, which is the content, and underlining the verbs, which are the skills that students need to learn. And, and if you break that down, if you break those standards down into those component parts, then the next step is really to develop your units of study to make sure that, you know, there's a logical, coherent progression of what you're teaching students when. And all of that needs to be taken to, into account when you are writing curriculum so it's not willy-nilly or very unique based on the perspective of the teacher who wrote it, right? And that, you know, that's the start. And then your assessment piece comes in after you wrote the curriculum or have written the curriculum, because then it's about, okay, well, what units am I going to concentrate on based on where data says my student needs are? So, so even if a teacher writes or a group of teachers write their own curriculum, I still think there's a scientific process to that that needs to be followed. But, there, but folks aren't just going to know that. They're going to need to have administrators that, that coach them and provide professional development on crafting curriculum, or they themselves, there should be a mix of, say, new teachers and teachers who have done curriculum writing before, but that knowledge has to come some, from somewhere in-house. Yeah. The other big one I forgot of until you mentioned it, John, is writing assessments. I mean, very few of us are skilled in writing curriculum, but then you want me to be an assessment writer? <laughs> and like the old days when you buy the textbook, it's like the tests were on the CD-ROM, you know, and you, you'd print them <laughs> off because it's like, oh, these guys know how to write tests. I don't know how to write tests. And I, I've seen challenges with that too, where districts develop their own. I'm thinking about one grade level in math where the teacher developed the assessments and after the teacher left and the new teacher came in, um, 
they lined up the assessments with the standards and the we, we call them like performance descriptors what would be proficient what would be advanced and found out that most of if not all of the assessments were written at like the below basic level yeah i mean assessment writing and development is a whole sub specialty in education right and two there's assessment is very varied i know we tend to think of assessments as paper and pencil tests right so first we have to realize that, yes, that's a form of assessment, that's formal assessment, usually done maybe at the end of a unit or at the end of the year as a summative data collection of what did our kids already learn, right? What did they learn after I've taught them? But then there's also the pre-assessment that should be done to determine what exact differentiation your different groups of kids are going to need how many instructional levels you have in your class, you know, but we, a lot of us tend not to think of that pre-assessment as helping us to, again, augment or adapt the curriculum for the needs of our kids. And then there's the assessment during learning, right? There are those informal checks on understanding, exit tickets, thumbs up, thumbs down, cold calling, which is still assessment, right? Because it still helps the teacher to decide, do I continue pressing on and quote unquote, going through the curriculum as we talked about before, or do I need to stop, pivot, reteach a certain point, right? So there's all of that when it comes to using assessment effectively. And then to your point, are we crafting assessments that are aligned to the standards? Are we really testing and assessing what we say we're assessing? So I'll give an example. You know, if I'm doing a math assessment and I have a large number of ELO learners in my class, English language learners, and I'm doing word problems with those students and they're not doing well, well, it might not be because they don't know the math. It might be they don't know what the English words are that, or what the writing prompt is asking them to do, right? So we have to be sure that indeed – we're teaching or, or assessing the standards that we say we are, but also that we are even differentiating or scaffolding the assessments for the needs of our individual students. And that indeed we're assessing the skill we say we're assessing. And then the other thing I just hope folks realize about assessment is paper and pencil tests, like I was saying before, are not the only kind. So are you using project-based learning? Are you letting students do case studies or scenarios that are connected to real-world issues? All of that is a form of assessment as well. So, again, when we're crafting and writing curriculum and then crafting the assessments that should go along with our units of study, these are just some of the other things we should be thinking about and aware of when again, we are crafting those assessments and when we are trying to make sure and validate that the assessments we are creating are again aligned with the standards and at a rigorous level or, or at a level that where there's a variety, meaning that an assessment has lower level all the way to upper level questions to really see the complete level of understanding of each student in our classroom. So, so thanks for mentioning that because that's important too when Again, we're crafting curriculum assessment. There's a reason why 
you know, the role is often not just called the K-12 curriculum director in districts. There's a reason why my title was director of curriculum instruction and assessment, because the three go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, that's true. They build off each other and inform each other. John, why do you think teachers don't feel comfortable with more of those outside-the-box forms of assessment? Is it because it doesn't fit in the grade book? Is it because they feel like if it's not on a paper-pencil test, it doesn't count? Why don't we see more of that in classrooms? Yeah, I think you highlighted some of the the challenges. One, if you're going to spend time crafting project-based learning units, right, that's going to require you as the educator to assess qualitatively as well as quantitatively, right? And those paper and pencil tests, did they pass? Did they not pass? You know, this student got a 75, this one got an 85. They're a lot easier to grade, let's be honest, Mm -hmm. right? It's very straightforward. And when there is pressure to get through so much curriculum and content, because our kids need a lot, especially post-COVID. I think, unfortunately, those project-based learning units, those alternative assessment methodologies go out the window simply because time. They take a long time to plan, and they take a long time to evaluate. Now, the payoff is, I actually think, the amount of learning and retention of learning that our students obtain from doing those types of activities far outweigh a paper and pencil test that they might have crammed for the night before, right? So in the long run, I think we're actually doing our students a better justice or serving them better when we are doing those cognitively rigorous alternative and authentic assessments, right? But our system is set up where, you know, time is is a question, Don't forget, in different places, teachers are evaluated based on the performance of their students, both in terms of growth and overall achievement. The exact percentage of how much of student growth and achievement is attributable to a teacher's evaluation, I do think differs from state to state, but in some way, shape, or form, all teachers are evaluated on student performance. So I think those kind of things and the way we measure performance in schools and the way that translates into, you know, politics and sound bites about whether or not we're successful with our kids or not in education. I think those things conspire against us when it comes to planning, designing, and then implementing these alternative assessment regimes. Yeah. Well, in in the state I'm in, student performance is not part of the teacher's evaluation. But I know as a teacher, I evaluated myself. You know, you would look at those results and that's how you judge yourself, which I'm sure most, if not all teachers are just like me. They're going to, they're going to be harder on themselves if things don't go the way they want on a test versus what a principal would say. But in, in my old school, that was a stressor with the staff. And I would tell them before state testing, there's only one person who gets fired if we have bad test scores, and that's the principal. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you're lucky because back here east, some states do have certain account. The different states are different, but a certain accountability measurement in teacher evaluations. 
here, but I think you're highlighting something else that's important. It's that internal compass that we tend to have as educators. And like you said, I think most of us, if not all of us, go into teaching with the best of intentions, that we want to make a difference in the lives of students. In fact, I teach student teachers at Brooklyn College in New York City, and when I ask students at the beginning of every semester, well, why do you want to become a teacher? That is number one, the number one reason that everyone says, I want to make a difference. I taught my younger brother, I tutored him, and I want to help and have an impact of more with more kids. So I think most, if not all of us, go into it for that reason. And so I think we want to be successful. And doing that alternative assessment is scary, especially if we don't know how to do it well, right? So when I talk about PBL and project-based learning, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's a project that comes at the end of a, a unit. Well, that's still a diverse way of assessing students, and that's not necessarily bad because it's giving students some choice in how they're showing you that they've mastered content, but that's not exactly what a PBL unit is where the project is the central focus, right? Mm -hmm. So so if you as an educator are not confident in what you're doing, of course, I think you're right, Eric, that's going to have an impact on what you do because change theory also shows us that to make a change, whether that's a change to practice, a change to belief, we are going to go slower at first, even slower than what we were doing that might not be effective or as effective as we would like. We're still going to go slower at first in learning the ropes of any new initiative or any new way of teaching. Even slower than, the, like I said, that, that strategy that is only partially effective. But if we stick with it, and we perfect that new strategy, hopefully in the long run, like I was kind of alluding to before, project-based learning will really help our students to internalize learning. But we as educators have to be open to learning the, that new strategy of teaching, sticking with it when we make mistakes, and we as well need to have good training on how to do that effectively. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think internal fear and frustration is also a reason why we're not really diversifying the types of assessment that we're building into our curriculum. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks, John. I wanted to finish with our big question for the listeners. What can principals do this week to be a more transformative leader like you? Yeah, so we are service leaders, right, Eric? And it really is about teachers are service leaders to students. I think administrators should be service leaders to the teachers who are teaching our students. So get out of, get out, if I could have one piece of advice for administrators, get out of your office, go to see your teachers teach, not in a formal evaluative way with your check, with your check boxes and checklists. I mean, there is a place for that, but in this case, I would say just get out of your get out of your office. I know you have a lot of paperwork. Try to do that paperwork after the instructional part of the day is over. Get out there, observe instruction, and ask this one key question of your teachers. What are you doing this week, and how can I help you achieve that? I love it. 
I love it. That's a great suggestion that can start tomorrow, John. Exactly. Yeah. Easier said than done because I do know as administrators, administrators get bogged down by superintendent requests and community requests, but we got to make time for instruction. It all comes down to student growth and achievement. I mean, that's why we're there, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great, John. I really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge around curriculum and assessment. That was a great conversation today. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE.